Solomon chapter number one this evening. The Song of Solomon, number one. And let's pray. Our Lord God, it is believed by all of your people that this book belongs in the canon of Scripture, that it is breathed out by your Spirit. And yet it is one of the greatest mysteries in all the text of Scripture. We pray for your help, not just now. Father, I pray your help not just now, but in the study of it, in the delivery of its contents, that we would always do all things for your honor. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So tonight we are going to begin to work our way through the Song of Solomon. Probably 30 years ago, um, I dealt with this book. I I seriously, I don't think I can, I'm I'm sure I didn't keep any of the notes. I'm probably glad for that. I would probably pay a lot of money to have any notes you might have about what I said back. For some reason, I do remember that it was when we were meeting in the basement where the teens meet, that we were that I was doing it in that Sunday school class, and so it has been a long time since we have turned our attention to it. I figure there are realistically four possibilities. Uh, one is the most optimistic that when we get all done, we will have learned something about the Song of Solomon. Um, Another is that when we get to the end of it, we will have learned nothing about the Song of Solomon. A third is that there will be a line at my door of people begging me to do something simple like Romans or Revelation. (laughs) Or fourth, I might find a reason to retire before the next coming Wednesday night. So my hope, seriously, is that we will learn something about this book, but it is, beyond any shadow of a doubt, the most misunderstood book in the Bible. And I don't say that from the position of, but here I am to save the day. But to say that as a reality, someone once said that the Song of Solomon is a lock without a key. And so with some measure of apology to you, we are going to take two Wednesday nights, tonight and the next Wednesday night, and we are simply going to talk about this book. We're going to take two Wednesdays and we're just going to basically talk about some of the things that we need to think about when we come to the book. Then we are going to begin the process of working through the book as a piece of poetry, because that is what it is. It is a poem. It is a love poem. And then, after we've done that, 
we will come back kind of full circle to where we began to see if in light of what we have learned as we studied, we have any clearer insight as to some of the other issues that drive it. Virtually every portion of this book is contested at some level. And I don't mean rejected, I mean as I prayed. The vast majority of people from the Jews, when there wasn't a New Testament, to New Testament people have accepted the Song of Solomon as part of the text of Scripture. That is not the problem. The problem is, I think you already know, is what in the world is it about? What is it about really? And we will talk about the fact, and I had a totally unrelated to the subject of the Song of Solomon, but I was talking to one of my pastor friends last week and we got into a conversation about just what pastoral responsibility is. Is pastoral responsibility for me to say to you, here are all the options, or is pastoral responsibility for me to say to you, there are many options and here's the one I'm going to give you. And, and I think if you'll think about that, that realistically I have done both of those, that I am not completely consistent. And, and this is one of those cases where I'm just going to kind of back the truck up and unload it and because I think that it becomes a part, a, a necessary part of our talking about this book. Part of the problem is the fact that it is what is technically known as lyric poetry. It is a love poem. Another part of the problem is that about 10% of the words found in the Song of Solomon are found only in the Song of Solomon, in their Hebrew usage. And that always adds a layer of difficulty because when we're trying to understand the way a word is used, we very frequently go to other portions of the Bible to see the way the word was used. I, I did that the other day, I don't even, in, in last week in Lamentations, when Jeremiah said, remember us, Lord. I walked us through six, four or five places, I don't remember exactly how many, four or five places where that word is used, and it helps us to understand that it's not just have us in your mind, but do something. Think about us with a way of doing something. We developed that because of other uses. So it's, it's the, the majority of so Song of Solomon has other Old Testament uses, but 10% is a substantial portion. In addition, we are challenged by the fact that the Song of Solomon is not referenced in any other book of the Bible. And so there, there's not even the slightest place for us to get a toehold on the way Paul may have used it or... Jeremiah may have used it, or Malachi may have used it, because nobody used it. And then, of course, just the way that it is put to us, and we'll talk about that this evening, just, just the very content of the book. And then I would add this, folks, as, as just part of the challenge is... Part of the challenge, I think, is, is on our end, right? There are some issues... On the book side, and I don't mean to call its inspiration into question, but the challenges, and some of the problems on our side. We are, by DNA, Bible literalists. And when God says something, we go, see, see the Lord said. And, right, and if somebody goes, yeah, but that's not what he meant, we go, no, no, no. We don't play those kind of games with the Bible. And so when we come to a poem, 
right? We have to be always reminding ourselves about the fact that we're dealing with a poem. And then when we're dealing with a poem, folks, we have to be realistic about the fact that the vast majority of people are just really not interested in poetry. And I'm not doing this for any humor value or to embarrass anybody, but I'm just, I just am curious, and I know we've got folks gone for the holidays, but do any of you read poetry just for the pleasure of reading poetry? There's a young man. I mean, seriously, when was the last time that you went to the library, now I'm showing my age, or you went to your, your Kindle and you looked up a book of poems and you said, you know what, I just, I just want to read some poems because I love poetry. And so most of us don't, and, and I don't, I, I, I'm not a poetry guy. And so those are part of the challenges. Okay? The adventure, however, actually begins, as I mentioned to you. There is no piece of real estate in Song of Solomon that is not debated or contested or questioned. And that begins in the very first verse, which is no, really no farther than we will go this evening. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse number 1, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. So as I said, one of the things I've decided to do with this book is just kind of Lop it all out there before you. Let's talk then about the title. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. The Hebrew actually reads, Song, Song, Solomon's. Song, Song, Solomon's. I will say this, that I'm going to take the position that the writer of this book is Solomon himself which is probably the position that you have about the book, but the vast majority of people who are writing commentaries and who are dealing with this book academically, and I do mean that critically, do not believe that Solomon is the author of this song. In fact, there's a rather lengthy journal article by a guy, it's a pretty good guy in a pretty good article, that's called, What is Solomon Doing in This Song? What is his role? Where does he fit? And here's the reason that Solomon is questioned. You say, well, Pastor, why would anybody question whether a book called The Song of Song, which is Solomon's, is written by Solomon? And that is because the thought of a man like Solomon, with his sexual history, writing a book of elevated romantic poetry doesn't seem to fit. How can a man with 700 wives write a book like this. That doesn't make any sense. A collection of love poems by one of the most profligate womanizers in human history. So here would be the position that I would take. And as I said, I, you're right, sometimes I'm going to tell you what my position is and sometimes I'm going to tell you what the options are and we can talk about that later. Solomon said that he wrote it. The Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, seems to me to be a claim of ownership, not a claim of editorial labor. And the fact that Solomon did not live well with reference to his romantic entanglements does not really turn me away from his authorship. While this is an extreme example, folks, let us not forget 
that every one of us writes better than we live. The Bible is an inspired book. The people who wrote it are not perfect people. They were good people. They were holy people. They were not perfect people. Every Sunday, folks, I stand up and preach to you a message that is better than the life that is living it. That is just the reality of human ministry. I make no excuses for my failings, and I'm not claiming to be a great sermon preacher or preparer. I'm just saying this. I'm holding out to you an ideal that is from God himself. That is not only a high standard for you, but a high standard for me. We all write better than we live. Solomon may be on the extreme end of this, but I don't think the fact that he has such a history that he does with women should cause us to question his authorship of this book. It is most likely that he wrote it when he was a young king, and in fact, we're not going to spend a lot of time getting into this, but let me ask you if you would to turn to Song of Solomon chapter 6 and verse number 8. I thought, I'm not, I'm not talking, but somebody is. I was, hey, listen, I'm just, I was fixing to blame the sound guys. I don't know what they're doing back there, but. Song of Solomon 6.8. There are three score queens and four score concubines and virgins without number. That might be, we don't really know, and part of the problem with Song of Solomon is there's much that we don't know. But that might be an actual reference to the size of Solomon's harem at the time of the writing. Now, am I saying that's what it is? I'm not saying that's what it is. I'm saying that's what it could be. So this, right, when we know how many wives and concubines he ended up with, but that is probably not where he starts. <clears throat> Go back to Solomon, Song of Solomon. And of course, I'm sure you know that it's called Song of Solomon or sometimes the Song of Songs or sometimes from the Latin canticles, and I may call it all three. Um, let's go back to the title. Song of Songs, which is Solomon. Who wrote it? I think Solomon did. His lifestyle notwithstanding. What does he mean when he calls this the Song of Songs? What does it mean to be the Song of Songs? Well, folks, one possibility is that what Solomon actually is referring to is that this is a collection of songs, like an anthology, a collection of various love poems. And one of the things that we will talk about, and if you go to the internet and begin to read, and you go and begin to do the research, and if you pick up any commentaries on it, one of the things that is debated is whether or not there is any structure at all to the book. Or whether it is just a random collection of love poems that have nothing to do with each other. The Song of Songs. In other words, it is a song constituting songs. And Solomon and I, Solomon, have written it. 
One possibility is that he means that it is the greatest song that has ever been recorded or written. And what I think he means is that this is the greatest song that he has written, and he wrote a lot of songs. 1 Kings 4.32, he spake 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Now indulge me, a little worldly correlation. One of the most prolific songwriters in modern history is Paul McCartney. He wrote 180 Beatles songs. He is almost at the top of the statistic list for individuals who wrote songs. He wrote 180. Solomon wrote 1,005. So I would understand that what Solomon means is that this is the greatest song that he has ever written. Which really leaves us, folks. I mean, here's, this is kind of where I find myself in the, the, the frustrating position with which I approach the book. This is the greatest song that Solomon wrote. This is his magnum opus, and we don't know what it's about. We don't really know what it's about. Now, I'm not saying you don't have a view about what it's about. I'm just, part of the thing I'm going to point out, folks, is that there are so many views about what it is about that the vast majority of people have to be wrong in their assessment of what it is about. And if it is his best and greatest song, what is it that he means that makes it the best and greatest song? Is it the best because of its style? Is it the best because of the structure of the poetry? Is it the best because of its content? Just what is it that makes it the best? And I'm going to assume that Solomon means that it's the greatest song that he has produced on the basis of the way the phrase, that Hebrew phrasing is used. That Hebrews, Hebrew language uses double words like that for repetition so that we have the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Right? Those, are, those are expressions of supremacy. So this I would understand the title to be a song of supremacy, the greatest song. But again, the question is, what about it makes it the greatest song that Solomon has written? So with that, let's begin to talk about the content. We've talked about the title. Let's talk about the content. Many people find Solomon as the author very uncomfortable. And the content that Solomon wrote is equally uncomfortable. This is a book, folks, that magnifies physical desire. It is a book, it is a love poem that is filled with sexual tension. That is a reality of the poetry. It is part of the challenge of finding a place for it. Where does it fit? 
But it isn't simply a book that it describes for us intense desire. It is a book that describes for us the complexities of that desire. If I may jump way ahead of myself, one to me, one of the great problems of going, oh, I know what the Song of Solomon is about. It's about Christ's love for us. That that totally dismisses the complexity of the book and the depth of the emotion there. And we will, we will look at that. This is a book not only about desire, but it is a poem about desire that is oftentimes unfulfilled. Eight chapters of strong desire that is often unfulfilled. It is a very complex book, folks. When you read it in your devotional reading, right? I think one of the ways we know that it is complex is that many of us tend to read it and just read it. Cover the words. I'm going to read the words so that I check it off my list. I've read Song of Solomon. The book is a poem. It is classified as part of wisdom literature. So what wisdom does it give us? What skill do we develop? What, what skill do we have added to our base of skills from our interaction with the Song of Solomon? It is not a sensual book, folks. It is a romantic book. It is not Christian erotica. It is not softcore porn, although you will find a number of people who would make that case and treat it as such. But it is a very romantic book, and, and we will see that. I, I think we know that, and we will look at that. Part of the difficulty of the content of the book, and as I've mentioned repeatedly, every part of the book is contested territory is that there is not universal consensus about how many characters there are in the book. Two? Is this a book about a, the love of a young man for a young woman and vice versa? Because it is mutual. And one of the things we'll note, folks, as we go through, is that there is kind of this mirroring effect. She will say to him, you have dove's eyes. And later he will say to her, you have dove's eyes. And that's meant to be complimentary, right? We'll get all that kind of seventh grade humor out of the way. This is a, a very romantic love poem. How many characters are in the book? Two? Three? There are a number of people that say there are three. There are a number of people who argue that the storyline is like this. Right? There's this beautiful young girl, this Shulamite girl, and she is in love with this poor, humble shepherd boy. But Solomon has his sight set on her to bring her into his harem. But she has no interest in Solomon. Her interest is in this young shepherd boy, though he be a very humble origins and a very locust state. And so it's the story of Solomon pursuing her and her rejecting that. And so there are three main characters. And then there are the daughters of Jerusalem, and who are they? And then one of the things that we will deal with is, as we try to go through, is identifying who is speaking. And if you have a King James Bible, unless you have a King James Study Bible, you may find yourself really scrambling to do this. 
Some of you that have an ESV, depending upon the ESV that you have, the ESV version that I have on my computer tends to identify who they think is speaking. He speaks, she speaks, he speaks, she speaks. Where does the conversation begin? Where does it end? Who's talking? When are they talking? These are all some of the issues that we just have to navigate as we're talking about the content of the book. So the title of the book, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon, the content of the book, and there are challenges in dealing with the content of the book. And then there is, of course, the subject matter of the book. What is the book about? What is the book about? When I get to the end of the eight chapters of poetry, what is the book about? So the question kind of gets framed this way. What interpretive lens should we bring to this poem? Now, let me just give you a heads up, and I know that it's Christmas week, and, but next week we're just going to give all of our attention to looking through, I think there are eight, eight different interpretive explanations for the Song of Solomon that we're going to talk about. I'm not even going to get, I, and, and, about, and I'm, I'm not making this up and I'm not exaggerating this, I'm not even going to talk to us about the homosexual interpretation to the book of Song of Solomon. But there are professing Christians who argue that it is a book describing not only romantic love, but romantic love between two people of the same sex. Right? We're, just, we're, not even, we're not even going to go there. But there are seven or eight seriously argued interpretations to the book of the Song of Solomon. I do want to mention two of the most notable this evening in their simplicity. For the vast majority of the existence of the Song of Solomon on earth, from the Jewish standpoint right through the early church standpoint, the vast majority of people who came to the book of Song of Solomon interpreted it as an allegory, as an allegory. <clears throat> and in an allegory, <clears throat> right, meaning is assigned to every person or object. Every person or object is invested with spiritual meaning. The, the clearest place of the, um, and, and you do find it in the Bible, and this is one of the reasons that it's defended as an allegory. Let me just read to you Galatians from Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verse number 22, Paul writes, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? See, Abraham's two sons were themselves invested with unique spiritual meaning which things are an allegory for these are the two covenants the one from Mount Sinai which gendereth to bondage the bondwoman Hagar which is Hagar for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth to Jerusalem which now is as in in bondage with her children but Jerusalem which is above is free which is the mother of us all now here's the issue, folks. If the Song of Solomon was an allegory 
and God gave us the kind of clues that we have in Galatians 4, there would be no problem at all with calling the book of Song of Solomon allegory an allegory. And an allegory argues that in its simplest form, the Song of Solomon is about, depending upon whether you're Jewish or Christian, is either about God's love for Israel or Christ's love for the church. Now that's in its simplest form. One of the most highly respected commentaries of the 19th century was written by a man by the name of George Burroughs. I would not recommend that you get it, but George Burroughs is a leading commentator of the and interpreter of the allegorical method. Let me just read to you a little bit from him, all right? This he writes in the introduction to the book, the reception of this book into the canon cannot be accounted for, but on the grounds that it represents allegorically the reciprocal love of Christ and his people. In other words, if it doesn't mean love of Christ and his people, it doesn't mean anything. It has no place in the Bible. There must have been some reason for taking it into the canon. It could not have been for the singing of carnal love. This the whole aim of Scripture opposes. Now that's what Burroughs wrote. So here's my question to what, Dr. what Mr. Burroughs wrote. Right, Mr. Burroughs writes that it cannot be about carnal love. In other words, the love of a man for a woman or the love of a husband for a wife because there is a marriage, there is a spouse. It cannot be about that. It has to be only the love of Christ for the church. But isn't it troubling, folks, that the way God chooses to communicate his love for the church is by through the carnal love of a man and a woman? If the carnal love of a man and a woman is so egregious of an offense to the Lord that the book could not possibly about that, how do I become satisfied with the fact that that is the analogy that he's using to describe his love for me. <clears throat> Turn, if you would, in the Song of Solomon to chapter number 8. Here is the poem. Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Verse number eight, here is the poem. We have a little sister, and she hath no breasts. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she shall be spoken for? Now there's the poem. I'm not saying that I know what the poem, I'm not saying that I know what verse eight means. But let me tell you what Mr. Burroughs says verse eight means. Rather read. We have a young sister, and she hath not reached womanhood. What shall we do for our sister with reference to the day when she shall be spoken for in marriage? These are understood by us as words of the spouse to the beloved. This represents the interest felt and manifested by the believer in prayer to the Lord Jesus for those who are yet in their native impenitent state. So Song of Solomon 8.8 is about evangelism. From Matthew 12, 50, we see that all are here are meant who may be brought to do the will of God, and hence all impenitent persons in general, no less than those of our own household. And interest for the souls of others is a characteristic of genuine grace. 
Now, the problem with making it about evangelism, folks, is that there's nothing in the psalm to suggest that it's about evangelism or the song. Or turn, if you would, to chapter 2 and verse number 15. And like I said, I'm just kind of highlighting this this evening. I'm going to get you out of here pretty quickly. But see, allegorizing, right? I mean, because one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to talk about typology. Does it represent something larger? Okay, that's another question. But allegorizing says it represents something, and look, all of the individual pieces represent something in their own right. So, for instance, and this is not from Burroughs, at least I didn't read Burroughs on this. Chapter 2, verse number 15. Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vine, Vines, for our vines have tender grapes. One allegorizing interpret or explanation is that that is about the aging process, the ravages of time upon the human body. And if you go, really, I'm with you. Really, that's what that's what that's about. Let me read to you from another commentary written by a man by the name of John Phillips. John Phillips is a very well-respected commentator. We instinctively feel that there is more to this book than meets the eye. That's true. In some ways, it is like the parables of the Lord Jesus. It is when we come to interpret this book that the discussion and debate begin. The book has been thought to be an allegory of the history of the Jews from the time of Abraham to the advent of Messiah or an allegory of the emancipation of the Hebrew people from their slavery in Egypt, in the wilderness wanderings and the eventual conquest of Canaan. Some think it depicts the relationship between Jehovah and the Israel, the love of Christ for the church, or the love of a soul for Christ. Others view the book simply as an historical poem celebrating the marriage of Solomon with Pharaoh's daughter, or perhaps relates how he met and won the affection of a country girl. This is a song about Solomon, a Shulamite, and a shepherd. The shepherd is the picture of Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. The Shulamite mirrors the church or the individual believer devoted to him. Solomon represents the prince of this world armed with all the worldly pomp, power, and magnificence. Here's what I want to do, and I, and I seriously want to close with this, and I want to get us out of here this evening. Right? There's a sense, folks, in which we are facing a daunting task because we are reading a book that God wrote and which some really, really, really good and godly people have been all over the planet in explaining to us. So I just want to do this very quickly this evening. <clears throat> right? Just and this I just this helped me. Right? This may be a completely meaningless to you. But I am not a poetry guy. <clears throat> So I asked myself, if I had a poem that wasn't an inspired poem, how would I think about that poem? So here's the poem that I chose. And I'm just going to throw a couple of things out and we're going to go home tonight. Well, we're going to take some prayer requests and we're going to go home. The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost, a very familiar poem. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, 
Though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. One of the most famous poems written by an American poet, Robert Frost. Now, if I came to that poem, folks, and I applied an interpretive grid upon it, like I would impose upon the book of Ephesians, just literal, inflexible, take the words at the face value, then Robert Frost wrote a poem about a man taking a walk in the woods. Nobody believes that's what the poem is about. Everybody that reads the poem understands the poem to be some kind of metaphor about the choices we make and the consequences of those choices. That's the very simplistic version. You can find that all over the internet. There are people who studied it and studied it and studied it, but the, the simplest is that it's a poem about choices. Life, life confronts you with choices. Choices have consequences. There are a couple of places in the poem, and I'm just going to mention one, where people have tried to come up with some allegorical element to the poem. So that not only is the poem about life choices and the consequence of choices, there are other things in there that have deeper, deeper meanings. So that the fact that there was a yellow wood means that it is autumn and therefore it is a poem about the age, the end of life choices. That would be the way that you would look at it if you were trying to deal with it allegorically. I do think, folks, this is just my judgment, that there is probably something deeper to the Song of Solomon than simply the love of a man for a woman. But there are some really good people who argue that the book really goes no farther than that. But I don't think, you're not going to hear from me, <clears throat> fanciful explanations of foxes and vines and aging process and evangelism. I don't think those things are there either. Okay, so I'm going to stop. <clears throat> Song of Solomon 1-1. Do you have any 